Grace, mercy, and peace to you in the name of God our Father. Amen. Video kind of puts a different spin on things, doesn't it? Sometimes a helpful way of looking at things. You know, today we're, we're continuing on in this series that we started several weeks ago on trying to find lasting happiness in life. The video tries to, to show you one way to that kind of happiness in marriage, but, but Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount eight different things, that pieces of advice, words of wisdom to, to how to experience more happiness. As Mike was reading through the, the Sermon on the Mount once again, or at least the beginning of it, and went through the Beatitudes, my hope is that you recognize some of those different ones that we've talked about already, and probably some of them you've even forgotten what's, what are the elements behind those. But, but today we're going to talk about yet another one. And so I don't know if you've ever asked yourself, do you ever model God in your parenting or in your marriage or anything like that? And as you think about that question, whatever your answer to that question might be, Jesus says there's one thing you can always know is acting like your heavenly father. And he tells us that in Matthew 5, 9, as part of this sermon, he says, happy are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Jesus says you're a son of God when you're a peacemaker. Now I want you to think about this idea of peacemaker. How many of you guys think you're great peacemakers at the moment? How many of you guys want to be great peacemakers, right? I, I think a lot of us do. We're not really sure what that all looks like, but let me tell you what it isn't. He doesn't say peace lovers, right? I mean, it's not, a, it's, it's not Miss America and everybody doesn't want world peace. I mean, everybody wants world peace. I mean, that's the reality of it. Everybody wants peaceful situations at work. Everybody wants peaceful situations in the world. Everybody wants peace. That's not what he's talking about. It doesn't say happy are the peaceable, those who never get disturbed by anything. You know, those that are like a duck and are able to let things roll. I, I love that expression. And, and if we could let more things roll in life, we would be much happier. I, I promise you that. But that's also not what he's talking about. No, it says happy are those who make peace, who actively seek to resolve conflict. Now, how many of you guys want to be great peacemakers? <laughs> Nobody. But you're like, ah, well, a couple people. And the reality is, is because this one takes effort, right? This one means I have to get involved. This one's hard. Now, you don't have to raise your hands on this one, but my guess is that a lot of people out there are experiencing unresolved conflict or have had unresolved conflict in their life. Whether it be between your spouse and you just got in a fight and you both were too prideful at the moment to, to start the process of, of working through it because you're like, yeah, she needs to start it. No, he needs to start it. And you're, you're in that moment. Sometimes it's with your kids. Sometimes it's with people at work. Sometimes it's with extended relatives, whoever it might be. Sometimes it's your neighbor. Jesus says, happy are the peacemakers. Happy are those that care enough to get involved to try to seek and create and go through the tunnel of chaos at times to begin the healing process. And that's a lot harder thing than some of the other ones that we talked about. And so you start asking, well, why in the world would I want to get involved to that extent? Why in the world would I want to be this kind of peacemaker? There's actually a lot of reasons to that. I'm going to give you three today that scripture talks about. But one of the first ones is that unresolved conflict blocks my fellowship with God. You know, it, it means that you experience him less in your life, that you see and hear his truth less in your life, or at least you don't abide by it much in your life. The Bible says that you cannot choose fellowship with God and be out of fellowship with other people at the same time. In 1 John 4, it says, how can a man say I love God and hate his brother at the same time? The implication is you cannot. You're growing closer to God, and the other person's growing closer to God, it's going to bring you together. But when you're out of fellowship with other people, Jesus also says, 
You're out of fellowship with God at that point. You're not seeing his truth. You're not hearing his voice because what does we know Jesus wants you to do? To go and start the healing process. To reconcile, to say I'm sorry, to forgive. All those things that we don't want to do in the moment, right? But those are the things if we went to Jesus, we'd hear him say. So when we're not doing those things, it's getting in our way of our relationship with God. And so serious, this, and I've shared this before, in confirmation, one of the things that we share about communion is if you're harboring resentment towards somebody, if you have unresolved conflict in your life, call that a grudge, if you have grudges against people in your life, you ought not come to the table because you're not sorry for those grudges and you're not sorry for that unresolved conflict and you haven't tried to fix it. Now, if you're struggling with it, if you've tried to fix it and it's just not happening, if you've actually put forth effort, you come to the table to receive strength. But if you're not sorry, don't come to the table. God talks about that in terms of worship as well because you're eating and drinking to your judgment. You're saying I want God's forgiveness, but you're not even willing to forgive anybody else. Another thing it does, interestingly, is it prevents answered prayers. That's another place that you don't want to be. If you ever wonder why some of your prayers are going unanswered, sometimes it's because of the conflicts in our life. In 1 Peter 3, 7, it says, Husbands, if you don't treat your wife right, forget about praying. That should be like a billboard on the heads of you know, a lot of people that I know that, that in marriage, right? If you don't treat your wife, and the same would go conversely, wives, if you don't treat your husband right, Prayer, forget about it, right? In Matthew 5, it says that reconciliation is also a prerequisite to worship. When you come to church and uh, you're ready to give an offering and you remember somebody has something against you, it says, go get that right and then come back. So what is it saying? It's saying when you've blown it, it's up to you to go and apologize, to share your contrition, to try to make it right. It says that when somebody's apologized to you, that you've gone and say, I forgive you, and you've let it go. That that is the right heart to come and worship the Lord, that when you're harboring either I'm not gonna forgive them or I'm not sorry, as my buddy would say, you're doing it wrong, right? And that's getting in the way of your prayers and it's getting in the way of your relationship with the Lord. Because nothing can substitute for reconciliation. Not giving, not sharing, not reading the Bible. If you're having a hard time getting an answer to prayer, sometimes you just ought to look at your relationships and check out how you're doing with those. And then the last thing that I'll give you this morning, and obviously why it's part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, is that it hinders our happiness. For example, I'll just give you a simple example on this. When I'm in conflict with my wife... I'm miserable, not happy, okay? So you can see how this might mess you up a little bit. And Job 18 verse four says, you're only hurting yourself with your anger. In other words, he's saying resentment is done. When you get resentful, it monopolizes your attention. All you can think about is that other person. All you can think about is either getting even with that other person or rehearsing the hurt that that other person has caused you, and they're off, they're off having a blast. I remember it was our first year of marriage, Beth and I, and I had obviously done something dumb in the morning or whatever. And I came home and it was like five or six at night. And, and, and she, here she was crying on the bed. I said, honey, what's wrong? 
And, and, and she, she proceeded to share what it was. And I said, you've been in a fight with me all day and I didn't know, right? right? So there I was sailing off. It wasn't bothering me at all. And there she was all day rehearsing the herd. I said, next time call me so I can fix it. Don't let it go all day like this. But isn't that what we do? Isn't that what resentment looks like? We're rehearsing the hurt over and over and over. They've hurt us one time, but we're rehearsing it a thousand times, a million times in our head. And they don't even know half the time. And they're just sailing through life. So God says you need to learn to be a peacemaker. Now, in effort to accomplish this, there's actually a lot of things that we need to think about today. And God's going to give us five things on what it means to be a peacemaker in our life. Five things that help us resolve conflict at home or at work or at school with our friends. And I'll give you the first one today. The first one that God gives us is, I'm going to call it plan a peace conference. And I'm going to explain to you what I mean by that. In Matthew 5.24, it says, if you remember your brother has something against you, go at once and make peace. Now, here's what it means. It means you take the initiative. Don't wait for them to make the first move. It doesn't matter if you're the offended or the offender. It means you make the first move. You take the initiative. Do you see how important that is? Okay. Uh, think, uh, fight with your spouse or fight with your neighbor or wh I don't care who you're fighting with. Think about your last fight whoever, with whoever that was. And sometimes in the midst of that fight, you're just so sure you're right. Anybody ever experienced that? Yeah, absolutely. And we're right and they're wrong, right? That's what our mindset. And the, we know that, you know, some lines were crossed. Maybe we crossed a line. Maybe they crossed a line. But, but they should start the process. Right? They should say, I'm sorry first. And if they say they're sorry first, then we'll, we'll say our, we're sorry too. But, but they need to do it. And we get stuck in our pride. And what happens? Neither one comes to fix it. And we know if we would just be the ones to start the fixing, we could resolve it pretty quickly. Right? Because we love each other. I mean, that's the reality. We could solve it pretty But we're not going to because right now we're just mad. And so we stay the peace in our home and we stay the peace in that relationship because we're prideful. And so we get stuck. And they're prideful. And so they stay stuck. And have you ever gotten in one of those things and you just weren't willing to be the one? And have you ever said goodbye to a relationship because nobody was willing to say I'm sorry first? 1979, Sadat won the Nobel Peace Prize because he took the initiative, he broke the blockade, flew over to Jerusalem, and opened up peace talks with Israel, and eventually was awarded accords. A, a but Jesus is saying the same thing. He's saying, always take the initiative. Why? Because Jesus said so. He says, you are the one to take the initiative. Why? Because you're more mature. So go first, schedule that face-to-face -face meeting. Do you know anybody in your life who struggles with pride? You know, besides you, right? I mean, everybody does, right? We all know those people. So why do we do this? Because conflict is not resolved accidentally. It just doesn't resolve itself. I know we want it to. All of us want it just to kind of go away and disappear, right? But it just doesn't happen that way. You must intentionally deal with it. And when do you deal with it? Scripture says at once. In other words, do it now. Don't postpone it. Because when you do, if you avoid it, if you delay it, it only grows worse. In fact, the longer I wait to resolve conflict, the more difficult it becomes to resolve it. Is that true? Absolutely, it's true. You could have just said sorry at the moment, but you didn't. You could have said sorry that night, but you didn't. And so days have gone by, and weeks have gone by, and months have gone by. 
Again, I'll ask you the same question. Have you ever lost a, a friendship or a relationship in your life because you didn't fix it? And the, and the longer you waited, the more hairy it is because now you're opening up a can of worms and now it's, it's just this big thing that could have been solved in the moment. So you plan a peace conference and that just means you take the initiative. Second thing we do is we empathize with their feelings. In Philippians 2, 4, it says, none of you should think only of his own affairs, but consider other people's interests too. The word in Greek is the word skopos, from which we get the word scope, and it just means to pay attention to their needs. So when you're upset, who are you thinking about? Me. My hurt, you know, my needs, my issues, right? You hurt me, I don't care about you. I'm the one that's hurting right now. It's all about me at the moment, right? But God's just asking us to reverse that just a little bit. Hold a peace conference and actually think about what their needs are. Think about what's going on in their life that may have contributed to some of their orneriness at that moment and the reason that they said the things or did the things that hurt your feelings. See if you can see their perspective or understand what they're going through first. We need to think about what their needs are, what I can do to help that. Focus on their needs, not my own needs. And parents, you know, they have to do this all the time. They're, they're uh, kind of famous peacemakers in their home, right? Tug of war over toys, in-house fighting. What do you do? You listen to your kids. You be sensitive to them. You try to empathize with their needs to see why it is that they're fighting. And once you figure out why they're fighting, you help them work through it. One of the values of conflict is that when you solve it, when you work through it, it usually leads to a greater intimacy than you had before because now there's greater understanding. Why? Because you've been listening. Next thing that God gives us is then we attack the problem and not the person. Do we do that well in America? No, we attack the person, almost always. You know, even in churches, right? The red carpet, green carpet, if you're in my Bible study on Wednesday morning, you know this group. You got the church that broke up and split apart because one group, they were renovating the sanctuary, wanted red carpet in the, in the sanctuary. Another group wanted green carpet. And it just didn't stop with an opinion on color. What they did is they started vilifying the green carpet people, right? And the green carpet people started vilifying the red carpet people and they started making up all these things on why they liked that color and, and how evil they were that they would want that, you know, and, and all kinds of stuff. It couldn't be this simple disagreement. It had to be, oh no, they're the Antichrist, right? Or, or they're evil or whatever it might be. Do you see that anywhere else in life? Oh yeah, every time you turn on the news in politics, right? It's not that we can have a disagreement in our country over anything. It has to be, you're evil if you think the opposite way. It's convenient, because then we don't ever have to listen or analyze the actual subject matter or compromise in any possible way. We can just stay true to ourselves because to think otherwise would be wrong and evil. So we attack the problem, God says, instead, not the person. Why? Because you can't focus on fixing the problem, fixing the blame at the same time. It's impossible. And so if you're going to a meeting, think counseling, thinking I'm just going to blame the other person, then forget about it. I can't emphasize that enough. Way too often in counseling, um, people will come in, one of them will come in with the whole intention of blaming everything that's going on on the other person. It's one thing to raise issues. This is what we're struggling with. It's another thing to blame the other person. When you're raising issues, you're saying we're both contributing to this, we're trying to figure out an answer. When you're blaming, you're saying they're the ones that are completely at fault. If they would only fix themselves, everything would be hunky-dory. 
This is very seldom true, okay? So if you're going with the intention of blaming, it means your eyes are closed, or your ears are closed, and your heart is, and your heart is set. In Proverbs 15:1, it says this, a gentle answer quiets anger, but a harsh one stirs it up. And so engage your mind before you engage your mouth. Be sincere and not sarcastic. You don't get the point across by being cross, right? And so you attack the problem. Put it up on the board. We're both going to try to work on this and not attacking the person. Don't criticize, don't condemn, don't compare. In Ephesians 4.29, it says, don't use harmful words, but only helpful words, the kind that build up and provide what is needed. Don't go condemning the person. Don't be criticizing and comparing. Say things that build up and don't tear down. Now, when I do marriage counseling, often I'll go into rules for fighting, right? There are rules for fighting in marriage. They're very, very important rules. How many of you guys think that's important? Anybody? Everybody's hand should be up because do you ever fight in marriage? Absolutely, you fight in marriage because you've got two selfish people and you're passionate about stuff and you absolutely have times where you disagree, okay? So the rules for fighting, number one, never swear. Why? Because chances are they'll take that negatively, right? And it'll sidetrack the conversation. Never call them a name. Again, same reason, you'll sidetrack the conversation. Never bring up the past. Why? It is never helpful right? All it does is rehearse something that you've already argued over, and again, what does it do? It sidetracks the conversation. Who cares about my drunk uncle, Uncle Fred, right? I mean, we're talking about the kitchen sink right now. I mean, you know, it doesn't need to be over there. Um, If you would follow those simple rules, don't put each other down, don't bring up the past, you'll be able to argue about the particular issue at hand which is usually almost nothing in marriage. Is, is that fair? Somebody left the toilet seat up and set it down and it caused a big ruckus, right? It's really about just one thing. I'm sorry, I'll work on doing that better, you know, so you don't have that experience. Sometimes they're bigger things, and that's what you put it up on the board. You want four kids, I want two kids. Is there any way we can figure this out, you know? Um, sometimes it's, it's, especially when divorced couples come together, how do we raise the kids? I mean, this is a real issue. I need to be parent, you need to be parent to all the kids, and so how do we do that? You put that up on the board and you see if you can work it out. But it's so important that you attack, right, the problem and not the person. He goes on and says this, he says, cooperate as much as possible. Be a bridge builder and not a bridge tear downer. I don't know if that's a word, but it is today. So you go with the spirit of compromise. What can we agree upon? What can we do together? Would, would that be helpful in our country? I once, once heard this, this senator interviewed, and he was just at a time of honesty, and he says, you know what, really we agree on about 95% of this stuff, and if we could just focus on the 95% of the stuff, we would be able to get so much done for our country. But right now we're just focused on the 5%. It, it was an incredible admission, a time of honesty, but I just think how much good could be done for our country if we could listen to each other? If we could work on the stuff of commonality and not always worry about who wins the next election, but worry about our country and what's best for it. Romans 12, 18 says, do everything possible on your part to live at peace with all men. One of the hallmarks of Christianity ought to be that we have this ability to get along with people. Jesus says, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. Now, there is this truth that there's some people that you just can't get along with. They just won't go along. And it's not because you haven't tried, it's just because they haven't tried, I guess, is is more the reality. But Paul says this, do everything possible to get along with all people. 
But I need you to know, and it goes back to this video that we saw today, that peace always has a price. It does. That's why none of us wanted to be peacemakers when I kind of fully explained it. If you want peace in your home, your marriage, there's always a price. It will cost you your ego. It will cost you your self-centeredness. It will cost you your selfishness, which is why he said in the video, right, if you want a great marriage, you got to lose instead of win, right? It will cost you all those different things, but you've got to be willing to give in. Maybe my wife is right. Maybe my husband does have a point. Maybe my kids have a legitimate gripe. Maybe my parents do know what they're talking about. You've got to give up your pride and your ego, and that is the cost, that is the price for peace. In James 3.17, it says, Peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of goodness. So whatever you sow, you're going to reap. We hear that over and over. If you want people to cooperate with you, chances are you're going to have to cooperate. If you want people to be nice to you, you've got to be nice to them. If you want people to compromise with you, you've got to be willing to compromise with them. Do you know what a compromise isn't? I'm glad you've compromised to doing it my way right? That's not really a compromise. It's it's a one-sided compromise, right? Whatever you're dishing out is what you're going to get back. So if you've got a problem or a conflict in your family, here's the truth of it. Somehow you're adding to that conflict. It's just the reality because it takes two to have conflict. To have an ongoing conflict, it takes two parties that are involved in it. And then Jesus gives us this last point, emphasize reconciliation and not resolution. Reconcile means to reestablish a relationship. It does not mean to resolve all the problems. A lot of times I think there's some legitimate, honest differences between husbands and wives, employees and bosses, men and women. I mean, there's some major differences just between men and women. We should just acknowledge that and be honest with that. I'll give you one of them. The average man speaks 15,000 words a day. The average woman speaks 27,000 words a day. When you say, my husband just won't listen to me, right? You have to realize he doesn't have a brain with that capacity, right? So you get home and you still got 12,000 words left and he just, uh, he doesn't know what to do with that. He's done. Now, I kind of joke around with that a little bit, but there is a truth behind that. There is a reality that we might as well embrace and understand and accept instead of, you know, still trying to cram the, the square peg into the round hole. Women are just more verbal. It's a fact of life. And there's honest differences in life that we have. And many times you're just not going to resolve those. Reconciliation means you bury the hatchet, not the issue. Think about what that would look like in our government if we could just reconcile the relationship with people in Congress. Where they valued each other, where they valued working things for the good of the country. We would still have differences in the way we looked at life and the way we thought the uh, amount of government should be involved in all these different aspects, right? But at least then we could talk about it with one another like we were talking about it with friends to see if there was any commonality, to see if there was anything we could do to move forward. So you keep talking about it, but you talk about it in harmony. You can disagree agreeably. You can walk arm in arm without seeing eye to eye. You can have reconciliation without resolution in any problem. I say that because one of some of my best friends, he's a Packer fan and she's a Detroit Lion fan. Somehow their marriages work for 30 years, right? You can walk arm in arm without seeing eye to eye on every issue. Reconciliation then focuses on the relationship. Resolution focuses on the issue, the problem. But when you focus on A, B often becomes less significant. When you focus on A, reconciliation, we're married, let's be on the same team. Why are we fighting each other? We're supposed to be on the same team. 
We have a major disagreement. Let's acknowledge that on how to raise the kids or how to spend the money or how to have sex. Or, or Those are the issues. But first, let's focus on the reconciliation of the relationship. And then oftentimes when you do that, A, it starts to resolve itself. Or, or B, it becomes immaterial because you recognize there's more important things. Or C, at least now you've got two people rowing the same direction, working in the same direction, trying to solve the problem that's up on the board. You focus on emphasizing reconciliation instead of resolution. And when you help restore relationships, you're doing what God would do. When you help bring people together that have been estranged, that's the most Christ-like thing that you can do. Do you see, again, and I keep using politics as a reason, but can you see how we isolate ourselves from each other by our rhetoric? Absolutely, you must. Did you know every president since, I don't know, Clinton, I guess, has been the Antichrist, at least according to social media, at least according to different people. I mean, they've all said, you know, this president, didn't matter which side of the aisle, right? They're all accusing the new one of being the most evil person ever. But God asks us to be part of this ministry of reconciliation. When God looks down on you and you're taking the initiative to restore harmony in that marriage, harmony in that office, be that parent or that child, and you're helping them work through and, and get to another side in that relationship that was estranged. You're doing that which God would do. And God's looking down on you, and he's saying, that's my girl, that's my boy. And why would I say it that way? Because Jesus says, happy are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. God says they're doing exactly what I would do if I were in this situation. I would be trying to bring harmony where there is disharmony. I would be trying to bring unity where there is conflict. God has given us this ministry of reconciliation. He says, we should be known by this as Christians. We should be helped bringing people together and not tearing people apart. In Colossians 3.15, it says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The word in Greek is the same word that we get the word umpire for. And that just means somebody who calls the shots, who keeps you in boundaries, a referee, somebody who keeps the game going and keeps it in focus. He's saying, let the peace of God umpire your heart. Just talking to a couple the other day, they were struggling, and I said, man, you just need a mediator, right? Somebody that can help you work through these issues and kind of call you out when you cross the line, right? Help them fight fair, in other words. Let God's love umpire your heart in that way. When you have peace with God, then you get the peace of God. And when you get the peace of God, then you start having peace with the people around you. But it's in that order. You let the peace of God rule in your heart. St. Francis of Assisi used to pray, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. I think that's a great prayer to pray. Where there are hostilities, let me bring peace. Let me do the thing that's the most Christ-like thing to do in this situation. So if you're in your family, to seek to be the first person that goes and says, I'm sorry, to work through the conflict. If you're at work, to be part of the solution and not the problem. If you're in politics, God bless you, but to be part of the solution again and not part of the problem. Bring harmony where there is disharmony, restitution where there, is, there, where there was conflict. And every time, again, you go out and share somebody, share with them about Jesus, every time you tell somebody about the Lord, you know you're being a peacemaker in that too because you're helping them reconcile a relationship that was broken. You're helping show them the way to heaven. Jesus loves you is your message. And he wants to make a difference in your life. And he wants to forgive you for all the things that have broken this relationship and destroyed this relationship over time. And he wants to give you a new and meaningful life. Every time you introduce them even to Jesus, you're being a peacemaker. 
And so whether it's resolving conflict in your life or helping people resolve their conflict with God, God says if you want to be happy, you've got to be a peacemaker. And that's my encouragement as well today. And all God's people said, amen. Let us pray. Father, again, as we walk through this series on how to find happiness, we recognize again why we don't so often. So, Father, specifically today, we pray for those situations in our life, those people in our life that we're struggling with, that we have conflict with, that we have unresolved conflict with. Father, give us the strength to be the ones to start the process. Give us the wisdom to to understand where they're coming from and to understand what's going on in their life and just to help us understand. Help us walk through all these steps, Lord, so that we might see a way forward, that we might mend what is broken, that we might heal what is sick, that we might experience more joy and happiness in our life because we are now experiencing more peace in our life. But give us the strength, Lord, to be the peacemaker. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.